Well, another greeting. I'll say good morning as well. Excellent. Good to know you're all awake. Uh, This is another treatment week, so it's another week when I'm doing a lot of sitting down and speaking in short bursts rather than long bursts. But hopefully we can spend some good time together worshipping God and learning more what it means to be followers of Jesus. Our call to worship is some words from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars and calls each of them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Holy God, source of joy, peace and hope. We are pleased to meet in the name of Christ to offer our worship. We rejoice in the gift of this new day, rich in possibilities, just waiting for us to discover what it will bring. We thank you that on this day we have the health and strength enough to come to church. We thank you that in this place, We have freedom to express our views without fear of arrest. We thank you that here and now, amidst the confusion of daily life, you wait patiently to meet us. We rest in the assurance of your endless love and your free forgiveness of all that is past. We lay before you our regrets and struggles from the past week. We offer to you now the anxieties that fill our hearts, the worries that disturb our rest. We receive from you, here and now, the peace that you alone can give, peace within the storm. We look forward in hope and expectation for the fulfilment of your promises to us and to all creation. Trusting that one day there will be no more sorrow, tears or pain. Believing that one day everything will be made completely new. Confident that in all things you are with us, encouraging and supporting us. Joyful, peaceful, hopeful God, creating, redeeming and sustaining. We offer to you all that we are and all that we aspire to be. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning the readings are on the order of service. But Ian and I are not going to announce what they are. We are simply going to read through the verses. 
Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Today we're going to get a series of short reflections as we think about the Bible and the way we use it. And one of the things that lies behind my thoughts today is about the risks and benefits of proof texting. And the difficult thing about talking about proof texting is you can't talk about it without doing it. So we have proof texts ever sent a thought for everything that I want to say about reading the Bible. So there you go some of the difficulties we face. I wonder how you felt when you heard those verses just read aloud for you. They're very encouraging verses. They're some of the best known and the best loved verses in the Bible. The kind that you might find in a promise box. Maybe some of you have a promise box or have had a promise box in the past. It's a little box with a collection of cards or rolls up pieces of paper which have Bible verses printed on them. And the idea is you choose one at random, trusting that on that piece of paper is God's message for you. And a lot of people find that kind of collection of Bible verses to be very precious. It's a real source of encouragement on days when they feel anxious or unhappy. And there is nothing wrong with that. It can be a great blessing For many people. But we do need to be a little bit careful. There is an old practice that I believe um, Charles and John Wesley did of opening the Bible three times to find out what God was saying to them. And some people do that. And there's an old joke that I'm going to tell you about the person who did this. One day, a man picked up his Bible. He opened it at random, assuming that he would find the verse that was God's message to him. And so he did it. And the verse he found said, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, he thought, I don't see how that relates to my life. Never mind, two more goes. Opened it again, and the verse he landed on said, Go and do thou likewise. (laughs) Well, the man was totally shocked. So the third time, whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. It's a cheap joke. I'm not going to pretend it's not a cheap joke. But it does illustrate that it's actually very easy to use the Bible in a way that neither honours God nor helps us to grow in our faith. If all we do is pick out the verses and the stories that are comfortable for us to read, 
that support our own predetermined ideas, what we actually do is reduce the Bible to a box of confetti. You know when you go to a wedding, or nowadays you go to parties, and there's always confetti, isn't there? Lovely, colourful shapes that are, are tossed around to make the occasion the more special. And it's great, but it's not terribly useful, and there's an awful lot of clearing up to do afterwards as well. And I think sometimes there's a danger we can do that with the Bible. We gather, like magpies, the shiny verses that make us feel good about ourselves. And probably we lose out as a result. Now, this is a massive book to try to understand, and it's a complicated book. And I don't think anybody's got a big enough brain to hold it all. But actually, we have to be very careful that what we don't do is just reduce it into a little set of feel-good sayings to make it a kind of confetti, to make it just and only a promise box. It is far richer than that. But there's a second danger that's not so unlike the risk of turning it into confetti. And so we're going to hear some more readings now that might be a little bit less familiar. Anyone who attacks his father or his mother must be put to death. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some youths came out from the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Well, I wonder how many of you knew those ones. These are just three examples of the more bizarre and unpalatable things that could be found in the Bible. In fact, I had to be a little bit restrained because I could have found you some that make those look really quite nice. There is a danger if we lift odd verses out of context that we either pick out the nice bits or we miss out the bits that we don't like. And the temptation with verses like these is let's just ignore them, shall we? Let's tear them out of the Bible because they're too offensive or they're too challenging for us to work with. There is a danger that we want the Bible just to be a nice collection of feel-good stories and straightforward rules for a life that pleases God, whatever we think that looks like. There is a temptation to cut out all the bits we don't like, the bits that talk about violence, the bits that talk about racial cleansing, the bits that talk about where you can and cannot go to relieve yourself if you need to, or even worse things than that. And if we're not careful, we end up with a kind of a paper doily Bible that looks really pretty, and it's got nice stories in it. Of course, you'd actually lose what was ever on the back of the bit you tore out, but we'll not push the metaphor too far. But if you just have a nice feel-good story, it's not very interesting And actually, I suspect it's not very useful to us because it's not real. 
Our life isn't all nice, feel-good things and happy stories. Now, generally speaking, people don't tear bits out of the Bible, although there's a lovely story I heard about a man who came to faith in prison. He asked the padre for a Bible, quite openly because it's thin paper and it's great for roll-ups. And he started at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And he said to the padre, well, I realize this is your sacred book, so I promise I will read each paper, each page before it. So he kind of smoked his way through Matthew, and by the end of it, he had come to believe in this Jesus. So, you know, God can work with us tearing bits out of the Bible. But, of course, most of us don't use the Bible in that way. But what we do do, if we're honest, is we cut bits out for all sorts of reasons. A lot of people, like me, use different reading schemes. You might use, for example, Scripture Union's Bible Notes or Council for Word Revival Bible Notes or IBRF, which are the ones I use. And they make decisions about which passages to include and exclude. And they actually do a lot of what I've done this morning, picking out verse such and such B or verse verse such and such A. Because if you just did the whole thing, you get some of those nasty bits. Some churches use a thing called the lectionary as a three-year preaching scheme. Each week they will hear something from the Old Testament, a psalm, something from the New Testament, and something from the Gospels. But you can guarantee that there are bits that get missed out. You see, there are two risks with the Bible when we start messing with it more than perhaps we should. We read out of context proof texts or promises. We ignore the bits we don't like and we focus on the bits we do like. And that's really sad because if we believe that God inspired everything that's in here to be written down, even the tricky bits, even the bits we don't like, then we're missing out. So what I want us to do this morning is to spend some time thinking about how we can come to this book and allow God to speak to us through it in ways that are perhaps different from what we've thought about before. And we're going to look at some ideas about context, which is really important in a few moments. But you deserve a break from listening to me, and I need to sit down. So we're going to take a few moments just to think what we've already thought about. We're going to have some music and ask ourselves: am I reducing the Bible to confetti, to just nice, sparkly, pretty bits that I like? Or am I turning it into a doily by taking out the bits I don't like? Or is it a bit of both? Or is it something else? So we're just going to take a few moments to think about that while we hear some music.
After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So we have four Bible readings, each of which contain essentially a same verse. A verse that is taken from its original context in Hebrew, translated into Greek. Abram's name gets changed to Abraham, anticipating what came later. And it is used in three subtly different ways. And I think that's really important in helping us to see that the textual context, the the bigger chunk of the Bible in which a verse or a passage is located, is important as we try to understand it. In three different New Testament letters, we see the same verse used to support three different arguments. 
which is also an illustration of how God can speak to us in different ways through the same little passage of Bible. We shouldn't think there's only one absolute meaning always to a passage. Sometimes God has something subtly different to say to us. This scripture as the living word of God, it shouldn't surprise us that there are new things. So the first time we read the words, they are in the story of Abram. Abram, as we recall, is a very old man who has been called by God to go to a new land. And I love this. It's the kind of thing that only God can say. Go to the land that I will show you. There's something about God who never quite gives away too much. Just go and worry about it later. I'll show you. And he's been out there for many years, and he's still childless. It hasn't happened. Presumably, he and Sarah have done their bit, but nothing's happened. And not unreasonably, he says, well, one of my servants is going to have to become my heir then, aren't they? God says, come and look at the stars. Look how many there are. And you're going to have more ancestors than all those stars up there. And something rings true for Abram, amazingly, after all he's been through. And he trusts that what God says to him is true. And because he trusts in God, despite all that's gone before, he is judged to be a righteous person. But the story carries on. It doesn't finish there. Abram actually fouls up a few times, as we thought about the other week. He lied about the fact that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. He did all that awful stuff with Hagar and Ishmael. But he carries on living out his faith in God. So the Abraham story is a much bigger story than just that one verse. And we need to hold that in mind as we move on to the New Testament use of that one little verse. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're going to take the, um, the three readings in the order they appear in the Bible. Whether that's chronologically correct, I have no idea. And I don't think any of my scholars is here to correct me. Well, Douglas might know if I get them out of chronological order, but there we are. He'll be too polite to tell me. Paul's letter to the church at Rome has a central theme of salvation by faith through grace. And this is the one that the Reformed traditions love and claim as their own. This is the tradition in which we actually sit as Baptist Christians, salvation by faith through grace. And Abraham, or Abram, is cited as the exemplar of that faith in a God of grace, rather than a God who has to be pleased by the works that is done. This idea that salvation is a free gift of God, not something that you can earn, is central to what Paul is saying in Romans. And so he pulls this text out of the Hebrew scriptures to support it. There was nothing that Abram could do to make God be pleased with him. What pleased God was that Abram had faith in this God of grace. So that's how Paul uses that story, that text. We generally think that Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia. And he takes the same verse, but he's doing something different. Because in the Galatian context, he's actually tackling, amongst other things, racism. Though it doesn't use that language in the Bible because it wasn't invented. He's talking to the people in Galatia about how the gospel goes beyond the bounds of Judaism. 
And he's challenging the people who said the be-all and end-all to salvation is to obey the letter of the Jewish law. Now, we need to remember that Paul himself had been a very legalistic Jew who persecuted Christians. But he has come to understand that the Gentiles are now part of the promise. And it is through Abraham he suddenly realizes that this is so. Because Abram was promised he would be the father not of one race, but of many nations. And through Abram, people are included within God's grace. So what Paul says here, because he still got his salvation by faith through grace hat on, is that the true descendants of Abraham aren't necessarily Jewish, but they will have faith in the God of Abraham. So is that little bit about Abraham, about the importance of faith over works, or is it about faith over race, or is it something else altogether? As you know, one of my favorite books in the Bible, if not my absolute favorite book in the Bible, is the letter of James. And at first sight, that can seem to contradict the letter sent to Rome. Because James says that faith that is not expressed in action is worth nothing. And guess what? He cites Abraham again. Abraham's faith was showed out in his life. What James seems to be saying is it's not enough just to know all the right answers about what it means to be a Christian. It's not enough just to come to church on a Sunday. A real faith affects the way we live every day. Now, actually, I don't think that does contradict what Paul says, but it adds on something that Paul, if we're not careful, misses. If Paul is concerned with expressing the grace of God, and the inclusivity of God in those two uses of that text. What James adds on is the responsibility of discipleship. If we believe that God saves us by faith through grace, if we believe that God includes people of other races, and as we will look at later beyond that, then James says, fine, believe all that, and now live it. And I think what we see here in these three uses of this little text is how important it is to read the texts in some kind of context. We need to read it in the context of the Bible, definitely, to begin to understand what God is saying to us through it. But it's actually even more complicated than that because we are reading ancient texts, not things written in our own time. I've deliberately asked Joan to read the next two. You will see why. And there's a kind of divine humour, I think, in what I will be talking about. Joan. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. 
If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So perhaps I should shut up and go home. Two of Paul's most often cited and least understood texts about the role of women in the life of the church. And if you were listening carefully, bearing in mind that these two both come from the same letter to the same church, you should have been thinking, hang on a minute, one minute he's saying they can speak, and the next minute he's saying they can't speak. So what on earth is going on here? I think if we're going to make sense of what Paul is saying, and to listen for what God might be saying to us through this letter, we need to have a little bit of understanding of the setting of this church, what life was like for the Corinthian Christians, not chickens, Corinthian Christians, Um, what scholars call, this is my bit of showing off here, the sits in Laban, probably about the only bit of very bad German that I can say, the life setting of the letter. Every part of the Bible we have was written by and for a specific group of believers in God, believers in Jesus at a specific time. And we need to try to understand what was going on for them to understand why this message was sent to them. So Corinth then, a city known for its licentiousness. It was a city full of temples to various gods, including the goddess known as Artemis or Diana. Now, if you went to one of these temples, you'd be a bit shocked, quite frankly, as a nice Glaswegian Christian, because such temples often had prostitutes, and sexual acts may well have been part of the worship practices of those temples. Now, you could spot a prostitute quite easily in those days because her hair would be long and flowing and not covered up. And probably she would dress a bit less demurely than other people, but it was particularly the long flowing hair that marked out a prostitute in those days. I don't think that's how we would distinguish a prostitute in 2010. You probably wouldn't know one if she walked or he walked past our front door. And as the church in Corinth began to grow, it seems that Paul's concern is not that the women are praying or prophesying, but that they might be confused with the prostitutes from the temple down the road. It's not that he's saying you cannot play a part in worship, What he's actually saying as part of a much bigger thing about their whole worship practice is, hang on a minute, we don't want people confusing us with that temple down the road where those things go on. He also talks about their communion practices, something we kind of skip over, that the rich people were having a nice dinner before they came out and the poor people who were hungry arrived And there was nothing to eat because nobody who was rich needed anything to eat. It's all part of a bigger thing about what is your worship life like? 
How does that reflect what you believe? And yes, there is a whole lot of stuff that is patriarchal and uncomfortable for 21st century people to read. But if we ignore the culture and the context in which Paul was writing, we could confuse what is the true message of God, the stuff for all time, about what makes us distinctive from the stuff that was cultural about what a prostitute looked like. There are churches that get a bit hung up about women in short skirts or men with open neck shirts. It's the same kind of thing that goes on today about what's okay and what's not okay to wear in church. Thankfully, here we don't seem to get too hung up about it. But then at the end of that same letter, there is this requirement for women to be silent in church. So what's that all about? Well, it's seems that the origins of this actually go back to how synagogues were in those days and in fact how orthodox synagogues even are today. So the men all sit down in the ground floor where they can hear the preacher and upstairs in the gallery behind a screen are the women. And I am told that if you go into some synagogues today and you go into the women's area, you will discover that rather than listening to the preacher the women are chatting. Of course, the men downstairs are all listening attentively, aren't they? They're not having a little sleep or doing the crossword inside the paper or something. But the women are not paying attention. They're not participating in worship. And maybe this is what Paul's on about. And maybe, rather than giving them a good dressing down, he's been quite gentle He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, they're not talking about what Mrs. Cohen's wearing and what we're cooking for dinner tomorrow. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say perhaps they don't understand. So just be quiet. And if you don't understand, when you get home, talk it over. That seems quite good advice to me, actually. Now, everybody's been very well behaved today. But, you know, sometimes when I'm preaching, I just catch out of the corner of my ears little voices going on. Or perhaps when I announce a hymn, there's a bit of muttering. I mean, we don't like that hymn. Couldn't we sing something else? Or there's when we start the prayers and somebody fishes through their handbag for the collection because they know that the collection follows the prayers. And I actually wonder if there is something here, again, about our practices in worship that has got something useful to say, not just to women but also to men about why are we here? What's it for? It seems important that we read beyond one little verse here and one little verse there to see what it is that Paul is talking about to this church in Corinth. And it seems that what is important to him is good, authentic worship that honours God. And those are good questions for us to wrestle with rather than worrying about whether women should have hats on or not have hats on. You're probably quite glad I've got a hat on at the moment, really, because it's not very pretty if I don't have a hat on. But, you know, we have to work with what it is that he's really saying about worship and following Jesus. And we have to be aware of the context into which he was writing and speaking. And we're going to move on now to one more little reading. It is a short reading, so I am being a bit guilty of proof texting myself here. But one more reading to lead us into thinking about the context of contemporary life. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, 
male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we've thought about the risks of picking out verses from here and there without considering the wider context of the passage or without considering the cultural context in which they were written. But the last challenge for all of us is about contemporary Christian living. How do we read these passages today? How do we apply them today? When we look around us, we see that we are in a culture that is very different from Bible times in some ways. And yet, in other ways, nothing's changed. Some of the questions that occupied these early Christians are true for us. Just like the church in Corinth, we are forced to ask questions about our worship life. What it is that makes us different from any other club or society. Like the writers of the other letters, we are forced to work out the relationship between our believing and our behaving. And what those are. And like all of the people in the Bible about whom we've read, we are challenged to be faithful in our own context. And so we end with this familiar passage from the church to Galatia, part of the same passage in which we heard about Abraham as an example. And so we need to listen carefully to those words, which are familiar for many of us, and open ourselves to hear them for our culture, in which the kind of dualism that is used in that first century context might not always be particularly helpful. So what might it be for us to hear that in Christ, race disappears? Not just there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but there is no such thing as race. What does it mean to hear that in Christ, there is no such thing as gender? What does it mean to hear that in Christ, there is no such thing as status. Because in Christ, each one is a precious child of Abraham, children more numerous than the stars. Of course, this isn't just another book. It's a book in which we are expected to find new insights for living our life as Christians. We do need to be wary of only reading the bits we like or that fit in easily with what we think and start to wrestle with the ones that are more difficult. We do need to be aware of the dangers of reading it as an instruction manual when it's actually a living, active world, word even. And we do need to be reading it as if the first century in Galilee was the same as the 21st century in Glasgow And we do need to be aware of the dangers of allowing our culture to determine our reading rather than to inform it. It's not for nothing that the Baptist Declaration of Principle sets our freedom to interpret and administer Christ's laws firmly under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The hymn writer wrote, Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. As we read the Bible, and as we seek to interpret it for our own lives here and now, surely this is our prayer. And so we join in that prayer of Wesley, asking of all the spirits to inspire us. Number 355.
Let us pray for others. Often when we begin to pray for others, it's human nature to slip in at the very beginning a little prayer for ourselves. And then we think. When we began the service this morning, the choir sang and we sang with them, the Lord is loving, the Lord is kind. And we remember that God gave to us his son to live amongst us because God wanted to understand the extent of our living, our loving, our suffering. And through our Lord Jesus Christ's life, he taught to us to love, to be kind, to care for others, and as far as we can, to sacrifice for others. And so we think of the people we know, and we pray to God to help those we know who are unwell, who are afraid of the future, either for economic reasons or for family reasons. We pray for those we know who are ill. We ask God's strength be given to them. And being human again, we think first of our dear minister, and we ask for added strength and added hope for her. And then we try and spread our prayers out for the rest of the world, and it becomes rather overwhelming, because there is so much need out there. Every time we open a paper or we listen to the television, there's another tsunami, another flood, another famine, another case of people out of fanaticism killing innocents, Another case of people who were entrusted with a child failing that child miserably. And the people who are supposed to look after such children at risk often through no fault of their own or perhaps, I should say, not because they want to, but they also fail. And as I say, we feel overwhelmed and say, oh God, take this away from us. We can't cope with this. How can we help? And then we remember our Lord Jesus, who taught us, in your own way, you can help as far as you are able. You must spread out the love that you get from those close to you, you must try and give it out to others in the world. And as your friends and loved ones are kind to you, so must you try and share that kindness. You have been shown the way. Our Lord Jesus, whose love has brought us here, he showed us the way. So Lord, let us try to love as you loved, 
Let us try to be kind as you were kind. Let us try to care for people as you cared for them. And let us try to mend the broken and feed the hungry as you did. Amen.